We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew the ninth chapter, and I want to welcome you if you've uh, not been here before or not been here in these recent weeks, we've been walking through uh, several messages on the importance of the whole truth. And we've been looking at the Christian life in various ways, thinking about what is the whole truth of God in a particular perspective and noting how dangerous or harmful half the truth can be. We can have something that's half true and all of what we have is true, but it's not complete in its truth and it can be harmful. So we've been walking through, uh, again, just some different pictures in in the word about that. And today is our last one. And it's from Matthew 9. Now the Lord Jesus is going to use in Matthew 9 a picture about agriculture. So I want to talk about farming really quickly. Uh, I think in our modern notion of there's not a lot of culture in agriculture. The way we think of it today, it's mostly agri-science or agribusiness. And the way we approach it. My wife's family is from Minnesota. She grew up in, uh, you know, visiting home in Minnesota. So she has a distant uncle who farms like thousands and thousands of acres. And he was visiting a couple summers ago, and we were on the back patio, and I was trying to strike up conversation, so I figured I'd talk about farming. And he mentioned to me he had a little bit of anxiety, he said, because they, they're low on their heat units this summer. They need more heat units for the crops thinking, a heat unit? What's that? It's a sunny day. Okay? But he's an agri-scientist, not an agriculturalist. But in the ancient world, it was agriculture. Farming was part of culture. And it didn't matter what people group you were among, on what continent you were from, pretty much all people knew back then that God made things grow. It could have been Yahweh, but it could have been an entirely different people group. There is a God of the harvest in just about every single sphere of life because God makes things grow. There's things in the growing of the crops that are just beyond the control of the person. There's a level of dependency that's always there in the ancient world, and they know it. And so they would pray to their God, or goddess, to make things grow. The farmer could till the earth. He could plant the seeds. He could weed. But God brought the harvest. God chose when it rained. God determined the heat units. God alone does those things. God does the secret magic of the seed. And I would say, even in our scientific understanding, the deeper we've come to understand science, which is just another way of saying how God did it, you get deeper and the majesty of God increases. He still makes things grow. So that's at the heart of the people that Jesus is talking to. No one to a farming culture 
none of them thought that they were doing this independent of God. God makes things grow. Let's go ahead and look at Matthew, and we'll see how the Lord uses this in context. I'm looking at the end of the chapter, Matthew 9, verse 35. It's an occasion where the Lord speaks, and here's what he says. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The interesting setting about this little narrative is that Jesus is going to tell us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, but in a very real way, he is embodying the Lord of the harvest, right? Our Lord Jesus is going from town to town, bringing into the storehouse of God people. And it's in the act of him reaping the earth that he turns to his disciples and tells them to pray. But what we see is when Jesus goes from town to town, he goes with two things. He goes with the proclamation of the kingdom and with the power of the kingdom. They're connected. And when we see that Jesus heals every disease and every affliction, I don't think we're supposed to think that he cures the earth of these diseases, that it's some sort of comprehensive antidote to the disease, but rather I think the thinking is more in line of there's nothing that Jesus encountered that he wasn't greater than. Everything that, he, everything that came to his feet, he was Lord over because he's the Lord of the harvest. Now verse 36, Jesus is about to say, He's about to tell the disciples to pray about the harvest being plentiful, but not yet, right? Verse 36 is sort of the reason Matthew or the situation Matthew gives us that begets the words of Jesus. And I just want us to note what it is that Jesus sees that fosters his words. He sees the crowd and it says he has compassion because They look harassed and helpless. Another translation I have says they look weary and worn out. I like those couplets. Harassed and helpless. Weary and worn out. The Lord looks at them in their low condition and he thinks they're ripe for harvest. There's room in them for a better hope. They are humbled about their ability to cultivate life in this life. They know they have need. And in all of that, the Lord knows they're ripe for harvest. Think about that. The kingdom is not a talent agency. 
where God is, God does not call ripe the things, ripe and ready, the things that we necessarily think of as valuable. The Lord is looking for people who have in them the capacity to allow him to inhabit and bring his kingdom. And I would just say that to the room here to this morning, if there's someone here who's weary or worn out or harassed or helpless. You know, the Lord himself said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he sees them. And it's in seeing these people that out of his mouth comes the statement, right? The, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And what does he ask them to pray for, right? This harvest, the plentiful harvest. Does he ask us to pray for the harvest? No, he asks us to pray for workers to bring the harvest in. In this little reading, we've seen the compassion of God, his power, his desire. It says he went from every town and city. Again, once again, I don't think Matthew wants to think he comprehensively checked off the list every single town and city. I think what he's saying is that our Lord did not discriminate between one town and another as one being deserving of the hope of God and another not being deserving of the hope of God. If there was a town, Jesus went to it. None of us are deserving of the hope of God. It's the love of God that propels him without discrimination to every town and village. So we see this compassion and power and desire in the Lord of the harvest coming to reap the earth. And he asks us to pray for more workers. It's as though the Lord looks out and sees that God has done whatever the mystical work God needs to do. Now the harvest just needs to be brought in. There's some things only God can do. And Jesus is saying, he's done that. Reflectively, when I think of this passage, and one of the reasons I ended up here was because I find that I naturally do not pray this way. I don't pray this this way. I don't pray that the Lord would raise up workers. I don't pray it naturally. I pray it very unnaturally. And I've wondered about this for myself. Why, why is this an unnatural prayer for me? And I thought, what are my natural prayers? And I realized I don't think I look at the world as ripe for the harvest. I don't look at it as ready. I look at it as uninterested in God. Which makes me think I have a different definition of what ripe for the harvest is. And then I realize I do because I look at what Jesus saw when he said it. Jesus saw the harassed and the helpless, the weary and the worn out, and he said, that's ripe. And I say, that's a problem. Like my natural eyes look to the effective and efficient or look to the well put together and go, now that's right. I would that that would be in our church. I have it in reverse. Or I need to be careful. And I'm, I'm, it's me, but I think there's enough in common between us to say we must be careful. 
to adopt the very eyes of the great Lord of the harvest in the way we view the earth. That God's kingdom always makes headway in people who have room for God. Okay, well, Matthew ends a chapter with this. Actually, Luke starts a chapter with this. Would you mind turning to Luke chapter 10? It's another commentary on this moment or on this thought. You're gonna, we're going to read about the sending out of the 70 or the 72. It depends on which translation you have, whether it's 70 or 72. I want you to know it's not a typo if you have 70. It's just a translational difficulty. I want to read the first two verses of the 10th chapter, <clears throat> and, uh, and you'll see how they connect. Luke writes, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest, right? I mean, it's practically identical. They're to go before the Lord. They are to do the same work that they have seen the Lord of the harvest do. Christ has shown them how it's done with proclamation and power. Now the Lord is sending them out to do it. And it seems this doesn't last forever, right? They come back. In fact, they come back even in this 10th chapter, okay? So it's a less than a chapter long experience. It seems maybe that it was in the mind of the Lord to allow them to taste what it is he's talking about so that they could pray what it is he wants them to pray about. Because he sends them out with the prayer that they would pray that other people would go out. And he gives them certain responsibilities along the way. Let me read in verse 3. These are the responsibilities he gives them. This is how they are to do the work of God. Verse 3, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house, and if A son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. 
That's how they're supposed to harvest. You might, as a header, to think of all these statements, you might think they are to harvest in a manner in which they are ever dependent upon the Lord. Did you notice in verse 3, Jesus says to them, he sets the whole thing up. He preempts their doubts by telling them they're going out as lambs among wolves. He's essentially saying to them, in your minds, when everything is said and done and all the dust settles in the thinking, you're going to think, I don't think that's going to work. It will not seem effective to you. It will not seem to be the right way to do it. It will seem like it will fail. What does it mean to send someone out as lamb among wolves? At the very least, perilous. I think had he just described the whole thing to them, they would be thinking along the way, like, I don't think this is, I don't think this is going to work. And he's just preempting it. Because in the very next verse, verse 4, he begins to describe how it is they're supposed to go. Don't take money. Don't take luggage. Don't take sandals. Don't insulate yourself with the things of this world that will aid you towards being effective in your own way. Don't do that. Don't surround yourself with fire insurance and flood insurance and this insurance and that insurance. Don't Stop it. Don't do it. Go in the dependence of God. That's what he's telling them. I think through, you know, in my studies of world history or church history, we've seen times where the church has waited for the empire to expand into a land and then the church travels in the wake of the empire and tries to do its work. And what you most often see is when uh, that is resolved, that land is affected way more by the empire than by the kingdom. Just take the kingdom. If it's about money, you'll never have enough. If it's about training, you'll never be prepared. But it's not. It's about dependency. Another thing we see here in the fourth verse is telling them not to be distracted. Don't stop on the way. Like on the road to the town, don't find a good excuse to tarry. I think of my kids when I give them a chore, how many detours they need on the way to the chore. I'm like, just pick it up, dude. But I got to do this first, and I got to do that. It's all slow and sluggish. I think they think if I just delay long enough, he will forget. It's, It's the Lord saying this, right? On the way, just point at where you're headed and walk. And don't stop until there's a door in front of you, and then you knock. That doesn't seem like it's going to work. I know it doesn't seem like it's going to work. Rely on me. Verses 5 through 7 kind of talk about the demeanor of them. He says, accept hospitality as one who brings a far greater reward. You may be penniless, but you're not poor because you're an ambassador of the king. You don't have to bring money because you don't need it. Is what God's saying. So when you arrive in the village and you're brought into the home, don't act as though I'm really grateful that 
you're keeping me in here or like, maybe I should go from house to house so it's not being a burden because the truth of the matter is, is they're filling your stomachs for a time, but you're bringing something that's filling their soul for eternity. What you have to offer is like a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price or a coin that's been lost. You're offering something that they could never have any other. So stand up straight is what Jesus is saying. Like walk as a penniless missionary with a straight back because you belong to me. He also says it's not a numbers game. He says, if you go to a village and you find peace there, stay in that village. As long as, right, if the fields are ripe in that village, stay there and bring it all in. Harvest it. If not, go to another town. It's not some numbers game. Nobody's coming back saying, how many cities did you hit? How many souls did you win? It's not that. Live in the peace of God. Wherever he places you. I can imagine of this 70 or 72 that go out two by two, right? Some might come back and they might say like, well, we went to one village and just camped out there the whole time. You wouldn't believe the reception we, we had. Whereas others might have been like, well, we went to like three or four villages before we got any sort of response. I can imagine all sorts of things like that would happen. Finally, verses eight through 12 suggest this. Either way, Make sure they know who the Lord of the harvest is and what has come near to you. Right? In reception, if they receive you with peace and joy, preach the kingdom and show the power. It says, heal the sick, preach the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And in rejection, what do you do? You shake your dust off your feet, but you make them know the kingdom of God has come near to you. You're rejecting the kingdom of God. This great God of mercy has offered up his own son to shed his blood so that you might not have to answer for your sins in eternity. And this message of love has come to you and you're rejecting it. He would say, make sure you say, woe to you who turns away from the gospel. Woe. to turn a blind eye to the Savior. Make sure they know what it is you're bringing. So they go, actually, and in verse 17, they come back. It says in verse 17, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Notice what they don't say. They don't say, well, would have been really nice if you'd have been with us. They didn't say to Jesus, it was like this. They didn't do that. All, all of what they had seen Jesus do happened with them. That's the implication. They return with joy, kind of boasting of equivalent power. The same things happen when we say it, Jesus. That's what he's saying. They don't go with any sort of special technique or method. It's certainly successful. 
And I just want to like calibrate it. I want us to remember they're just like us. Now I think God's doing something special here, right? It means the ministry of Christ on earth. It's a special time. But I I want to be careful about that. I don't want you to use that that fire escape, right? I think they're just like us. I think they're nervous when they get when they come into a village. I think I also think in our minds we think like they're going out seventy two and one's going to Zimbabwe and the other's going to the Ukraine. They don't even leave Palestine. It's like the size of New Jersey. One couple are going to Newark. Some are going to Limestone and a few hit Avondale. It's small, okay? Ellesmere gets a couple. There's just, it's local, okay? They're not leaving the realm where they probably have people in the village they know. They have a good place to start, okay? They watch the same shows. They cheer for the same teams. They care about the same news. It's their setting. So I don't, again, I don't want you to say, oh, this is about missionaries and I'm not a missionary. It's not about missionaries, okay? It's happening in their hometowns. I would rather us adopt, this is it. Could we do this? Could we adopt the spirit? Lord, may I grab what I can from this scripture rather than insulating myself from its truth. God sends them out to be dependent upon him, to trust in him, to talk about him. Because God sees what you and I don't see, which is the fields are ripe for harvest. Because my sense is, is you and I don't see what he sees, and you and I don't look for what he looks for. But only he can make things grow. And he sees it. So they go, and they have this great time. Now, he's the Lord of the harvest, even in their going, it's his power. I want us to think about this for a second. The whole time they're dependent upon him. Right? Like the Lord of the harvest, he's doing things that only God can do. But even in their going, he's saying, don't, uh, don't insulate yourself. Don't take stuff. Be open and dependent upon me. And when you get there, and there's reception, trust me, my power will show up in you. So all through this, all through this account is this expectation and trust that the Lord of the harvest is going to be in and through the whole thing. Which, if you're like me, sort of brings you to the next speed bump, which is where I start to think, well, then why do I even need to go? I'd be the weak link. I'm the only thing wrong with the model. If God can do it all, why am I praying that the Lord would send out workers for the field? Why don't I pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would just harvest? Like, what if we literally cut out the middleman? This shows up in Scripture several times in some of our most familiar places. The Great Commission, the Lord says, all authority and power has been given to me. See, that's the Lord of the harvest talk, right? It's me. Then what does he say? He says, therefore, go make disciples. That's the raise up workers. Pray that God will raise up workers part. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And then what does he say? And lo, I I think it's lo, I, I like the translation with lo, Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. I'm the Lord of the harvest. I'm the Lord of the harvest. Go. Don't forget I'm the Lord of the harvest. 
all along the way in these dependent moments. Don't reach out and act like a human. Grab it onto the human faculties and human devices and methods. Don't do that. I'm the Lord of the harvest. You see that? Acts 1.8. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You see that? And then you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Lord of the harvest, and you'll do it. But it's my power when you're doing it. This can, when we dwell on this, and when we, in our minds, right, this is what happens when you have half the gospel, okay, or when half the truth, when in your minds, God is the God who saves, and he's big, and he does things, and he does, he's working in hearts there, and he's doing power here. If you allow, if you allow sort of that half of the gospel just to go entirely untempered by the rest of the teaching of scripture, you can find yourself saying, why am I even going? And there's many people who feel this way. God is sovereign. He can do it. A common byproduct of this disposition is laziness. It's like a farmer sitting on their porch with a glass of lemonade, looking at the field that the Lord of the harvest brought. Like, look at that grand harvest that the Lord of the harvest got, thinking, well, let the Lord put it in the barn. Like, if he did that, why can't he just put it in the barn? Like, do I really have to get off this seat to go bring in what he raised up? A common byproduct of this is immaturity. Deep soul immaturity. Because a person, in view of the galactic power of the Lord to do everything, and then acquiescing everything to the Lord, never places themselves in a, in a time of dependency on the Lord. They never act out in enough obedience to find themselves dependent. And as a result, they're, they're stillborn in their faith. There are some, and this is what you want to guard against, okay? You want to guard against this. There are some who have this radically high view of all that God's doing in the harvest, and so they think, they think, well, you know, he'll just reach the reaches of the world. And then you start to paint like, like, a, like a, um, in a lawyerly fashion this, well, God had better reach the people in the jungle. If he's any good, he'd better reach the people in the darkest jungle, to which the Lord has said, I told you to pray that God would raise up workers, to bring in the harvest. Do not pin this on him. One day, many people will sit before the throne, some who think they know him, but he does not know them. Maybe a way to think about it is God is allowing us to participate in the marvelous work of the harvest. If it was your crop, wouldn't you want to bring it in? Bringing it in is a joy for the farmer. It's a celebration. There's always a party after the bringing in of the harvest. It's called Oktoberfest. 
or the, the feast of the ingathering would have been the Hebrew language. There's always a festival because it's good news. That's half the gospel. God's so strong, he should do it himself. He can do it himself, he should do it himself. Why would he want to use, it's false humility. Why would he want to use a lowly person like me? I'm the weak link. Well, it's because if you really are that weak, all the more room for him to manifest his glory. Manifest his awesome glory through a weak, dependent vessel like you. No one, the town couldn't help but see Jesus Christ in a person as weak as you. That's half the gospel. Another half of the gospel is the other side that says it's all on me. By golly, we, we got to get out there. If we don't carry this ball down the field, we just don't know what's going to happen to the kingdom of God. As though in some way, you know, with the word, half the songs we sing today, with the word, God made all of creation. And with the word, he sent his son to save us. But somehow he forgot the little part about bringing in the harvest. And like we, in the last minute, he's leaning on us to make that happen. This, this perspective that it's all on us, it has a byproduct where evan- the evangelism is far more concerned about method or strategy. It's really something, if it's up to us, it's really how we do it. It's not so much dependency as it is methodology. People who have this disposition, this disposition are proud of the number of souls they've saved or they feel just grief and anxiety for the number of souls they haven't saved. Because either way, it's your fault. But it isn't. All God's asking is for you to be obedient and dependent. In fact, we know it ought not to work. You're going out like lamb among wolves, and he's teaching us how to dust the, take the dust off our feet. My prayer is that God would give us eyes to see the ripened fields that he sees. I think if we could see that, if we could see what he sees, we'd want to bring it in. And our prayer today is going to be that we can actually pray this prayer with obedience. Because there are some things that only God can do. He brings the harvest and we bring it in to the storehouse. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you mindful of the fact that many of us who call on the name of Christ were once uh, not yet brought in. Someone told us, someone shared with us, someone confessed Christ to us. Someone manifested the power of the Lord to us through their weakness and dependence upon him. We saw things in their life that validated you to us. Lord, we, I pray that this room can remember those, those moments and those experiences. Remind themselves that the saving scythe of God once pulled them into. And Lord, help us to pray this beyond words. Help us to pray this with our heart, Lord. We ask you to raise up workers for the field. And 
in one grand sense, Lord, we pray that would be true of missionaries who would answer great and bold callings that would tell wonderful stories of faithfulness. But Lord, locally, we pray that you would raise up workers for the field here in the towns and the villages here among the people we know here. We pray this trusting that the fields are ripe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.